DA Vance, thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. I'd like to begin talking about public service. Uh, you graduated Yale and Georgetown Law. I'm assuming you had your pick of the litter as it relates to law jobs. Why public service? I, um, in ultimately deciding what to do when I was at the doorstep of practicing law, felt uh, that working in court was going to be that way to practice the craft that I was most interested in at the time. But I, would, I did not have a deep background in criminal law <clears throat> when I joined the DA's office, as many young men and women do today. I, th I don't think I was as clear in my professional goals as others may have been or others uh, are today. I, I, I worked for, uh, I'd worked for an oil company for years between uh, university and law school and through law school. And so I sort of, I, you know, I really was trying to figure out what was next. Was I going to try to be a lawyer who worked on international projects or or something else. And ultimately, I, I interviewed with a number of firms and I talked to a number of people, but it was uh, Bob Morgenthau, who I met with to talk about the DA's office, uh, that excited me the most. And, and it's what I would tell young students or students who are looking for guidance on what to do after law school is to, uh, if, 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 if your finances permit it, uh, try to find that job that is going to be the most, you think, intellectually and emotionally rewarding because that first legal job can sort of define your enthusiasm for your career as a lawyer in, in the decades that follow. Now, what impact did your dad have on you? Your dad was a high-level public servant himself, head of the State Department. Uh, well, my father was at one sense sort of a role model and mentor. Uh, he was like that generation working all the time. So, you know, it wasn't like we went fishing every weekend, but uh, I saw as, you know, as I was getting out of college, thinking what to do, I, there was sort of an inherent resistance in doing something different than he did. Um, but there was also gravity uh, and that was pulling me into, uh, into the legal practice. And I think at the end of the day, uh, why I think I was in, sort of subliminally interested in law is I saw it as he practiced it that, it, well, first of all, it meant a great deal to him personally. It, it satisfied um, uh, his desire to be doing something that he felt mattered and that was changing the life of people and making a contribution to society at the same time as, uh, as, as practicing your craft. So I think as a young man, it was the sort of enthusiasm that he had for practicing law and why and what you could do with that degree and how you could help people is what drew me to it uh, and to join the DA's office. Now, upon your announcement to run, you were endorsed by a plethora of folks, including uh, the guy you just mentioned, Bob Morgenthau, who was the legendary uh, Manhattan prosecutor. What did that mean to you and your public service aspirations at the time? Well, Bob's endorsement from a political standpoint was important. And so I was grateful uh, and appreciative that he endorsed me. I wished he'd done it sooner, but he did endorse me at least in the ninth inning. And, um, and I had respect for Bob going back to, you know, going back three decades when I worked at his office, he was in New York, a, 
and again nationally a you know sort of a legendary figure. So his endorsement was 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 important in the process of getting elected. And personally, I was uh, both grateful and and very happy that Bob showed that confidence in me. Now, D.A. Vance, I often tell folks that the two most important words in our justice system are prosecutorial discretion. Um, what factors did you and your assistants take into account when making charging decisions, plea offers, and the various other decisions that prosecutors have to make? First of all, it is a holistic analysis, not a statistical analysis. I don't think you can look at discretion and really define what it is and how it should be applied. Now for corporations, we did create and have, perhaps it still is on the firm's website, essentially the, the factors uh, that we would take into consideration in terms of whether a corporation should be charged or not. And I think we did that because uh, it was being utilized in the federal system, had been for some time. And I think there are different, there are different factors when you look at a corporation versus an individual. Some, some overlap factors, but there are different ones as well because we're dealing with an institution um, uh, uh, made up of, you know, of, of many people and not just individual defendant. So in the corporate context, we actually had written guidelines and those were you know those related to for example were there prior violations was there an existing compliance program in the corporation that was operating and uh, or, or not um, and those sorts of historical questions about how the corporation has managed itself in the past and what institutions it has uh, internally today that will make it less likely to get in trouble again. For an individual, it's really, I think there's too many, it's, it's almost impossible. Uh, uh, I think uh, fairness is sort of the first thing you need to start with. Um, it, in every decision about charging a case, you want to balance public safety and fairness. Um, in deciding whether or not to prosecute, I think the same sort of two factors uh, are, are the most important is, is the resolution of the case without charges, is that both satisfying our public safety job and our fairness, not just fairness to the defendant, but fairness to the victims and fairness to you know, the, the broader community. So I would say fairness, public safety are the basic guidelines, uh, the sort of uh, You know, white lines that you need to stay between when you are uh, running an office. There are there are other factors that are important depending upon the case. For example, if it is a case where someone is uh, uh, undocumented and the consequence of being charged would trigger deportation, you know that's a factor to be considered, uh, and it's why we developed sort of a, you know, a, um, a unit within the office to understand, so the, so the office could have a unit to go to, to answer questions about immigration status and the impact on that status in the event of a charge and conviction. That's just a, and that's, that's one that is often lawyers would come to us with that question. And then we, 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 of course, 
uh, did consider it, should consider it. Sometimes we agreed, sometimes we did not. Prior criminal record um, uh, is, a, is, a, is another factor. Um, the sense that the individual who has been charged or about to be charged is prepared to accept responsibility, whether or not the person is actually charged in court, you know, is this, is this person prepared to say, this is what I did and, and, and to, you know, to address that problem. Um, so it takes many forms, Dimitri. Your tenure uh, as DA encompassed a shift in the media, right? Social media became more and more prevalent uh, into the 2010s and obviously beyond that. How difficult is it to resist public pressure in making charging decisions or any decisions as DA? I think it is a reality of the job. And I would say, I, would, I, I don't put it through the lens of difficulty. Um, I think when you run an office of a, a public agency, you have to know what the public is thinking. You know, you, just in order to understand what's happening. So you need to know that in Northern Manhattan, the neighborhoods are upset with the level of, you know, with motorbikes that are being ridden by gangs of kids. That's just, you know, a simple example. Um, you need to know that stuff, but it isn't at a political level. It's at a community concern and public safety level. When there are, when a case arises that is, that gets a lot of attention and triggers sort of cultural uh, and uh, concerns of communities by what the case represents. Um, again, I think familiarity with what is being said is important, but I would say to all my assistants, and I think that this preceded me, is, is they were not to consider politics at all. You know, I, they, they were kept out of the paper. Uh, you know, that's why Historically, assistants who are handling the case weren't being interviewed or, uh, because we really wanted to separate them from the politics and some of the, uh, the unpleasantness that comes from it. I would say that um, you know, I, I genuinely don't think politics played a decisive role in any charging decision I made. I think I consciously and we consciously stayed away from politics. Now. You might conclude, looking at the decision I made, well, you must have been influenced by this group or, or that, that other group. And it may well have been that I understood the positions of those groups. Uh, but the decisions were really made based upon the assessment internal to the office of what happened, can we prove it? Can we prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? If we can, what is the position of the victims or the survivors in the case? What what are they? What do they think about perhaps a range of outcomes? Uh, and but but not is local three eighty seven going to be mad at me if I if I decide to charge a, a member? You're all you you know you you are invariably making someone extremely unhappy when you prosecute. And so you can't expect um, that being the, the, the job of being the decider in an office like ours is, is necessarily makes you very popular. Now, 
related to the issue of discretion is the idea of oversight. Now, uh, prosecutors do have some oversight judges and, and other elements of the justice system. There is no direct oversight committee, at least not one that is regulated uh, in any real way. Do you believe something like that should exist? Or would it simply be a political animal? Because necessarily it would have to be comprised using the mechanism of some politician. As a result of that, credibility would be perhaps lost. Well, I feel there are um, there are institutional uh, safeguards that exist already that just need to be noted. You know, if 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 you know if you're saying you know having is, is did a prosecutor commit a crime? You, you know, you've got three U.S. attorneys and five DAs and an AG uh, all in New York, and that's their business to look out for that. Um, there are obviously, um, I don't know the name of the, the precise name of the, of the entity, but within each of the departments in New York state, you have a professional conduct, uh, aspect. So there is a, a system in place to, to receive complaints by citizens about lawyers or about an office, uh, that you know, I, I think that uh, transparency in your data is perhaps the best way to sort of you know, eliminate challenges on your policies. When I, you know, it, it was a question of technology, but in my last couple of years, we opened up a um, essentially a database uh, in the on the website where you could, you know, see the number of cases charged, the race of the individuals charged, dispositions. So one, so that if you let people know what you're doing, um, you are in fact satisfying, I think in, in one important way, the question you ask, oversight. Um, and when you are demonstrate that you are, are not fearful of revealing your data, I think that's, that, that's important. And I think that's a really re relatively recent phenomenon in DA's offices in part because financing the technology necessary to build those databases and, and, and make them publicly available is, is, is expensive and um, not all offices can do that. There was, I don't know, I, I think there was a commission on prosecutorial conduct created in New York State. You may know, Dimitri, I, don't, I, I know that Governor Cuomo tried to do it. I'm not sure that the current governor has in fact, I thought it, I thought it was created, but I don't think it's met or done anything. Um, and I think from, our, from my perspective, I was not opposed to it, but I think I thought it was political. Well, you know, it had strong political overtones and that it was, uh, I, I, I just think that the governor needed to make sure that the governor understood what the purpose of this was for. And if it, um, prosecutor, obviously prosecutors have done things that are wrong, they've made mistakes and they, uh, they hold important public offices. So I'm not, uh, I'm not against um, having to answer for decisions as prosecutor, but if the process for review of prosecutors that you create is one, for example, that can open an investigation in the middle of a grand jury investigation and, and therefore threatens the viability of the grand jury investigation, I think that's wrong. And I think the original commission that was 
design for New York had that defect in it, that there wasn't a recognition that uh, the work we do every day actually um, can't be interrupted to file charges and complaints. There was a distinction drawn um, by folks between what is called white collar crime and blue collar crime or street crime. Under your leadership, the Manhattan DA's office prosecuted public corruption, plethora of other white collar crimes. How important is it to ensure members of the public that not only street criminals, quote unquote, but also white collar criminals are being pursued as well? I think it's very important. Uh, and I think that the uh, sort of number and, uh, and severity of white collar crimes that our office has prosecuted has increased uh, as, as time goes by. Those cases require more resources and are, and are more difficult to prove often. It, it often boils down to a question of intent and intent you know, is, is in the context of decision-making in a business organization, uh, sometimes hard to, you know, hard to really define for purposes of presenting proof. But it's important to the public that they need to know that we are focused on uh, holding people who steal large amounts of money or who are, uh, who are violating the public trust that, that they are, you know, they, they, that conduct is not permitted and, and needs to be accounted for. Now, you mentioned a second ago about the role of politics and the role or lack thereof that it played in your office. You were not primarily a politician, obviously, you were a prosecutor. Um, but every few years, you would have to become, for some limited portion of time, a politician just by nature of the work. Um, was it difficult to navigate those borders? And should perhaps local and state prosecutors be appointed rather than elected as they are in the federal system? Uh, for whatever reason, I never found politics. You know, I never found it that 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 difficult because. I was always very clear about um, what I was going to care about and what, what I wasn't going to care about. So if I went into a community again in northern Manhattan and they disagreed with my charging decision on some criminal case against an individual that came from that community, well, I'm in, the, I'm in my political mode. I'm talking to the community and I'm running for re-office and, and they'll tell me whatever they think about that case and I'll answer the question. So I never felt... Um, that I was, I had to be a different person when I was running for office or a different DA than when I was in the office. I, I, I think it was more uh, and an opportunity, frankly, to explain in, in a more transparent way what this important office is doing in cases they care about. Uh, so I, I don't, I didn't, I never felt burdened by that, but it, it there's more political, um, I think energy directed toward a state prosecutor than a federal prosecutor. If, I mean, federal prosecutors, because they come from a different regulatory system, decision, they, you know, they really don't get necessarily on the front line of these uh, political issues like race and um, you, know, you name it. Uh, so I never felt politics was uh, a huge burden. I don't think to answer your question that there's really a way to conclude that in an appointed system, politics does, is not involved. 
if you're, you know, if you're trying to become a United States attorney for the whatever district of whatever state, that's a political process. In other words, it, it's a, it's an appointed process, but for you to be selected over other candidates requires, um, it is, is in itself a different kind of political process. So I, I don't think we should fool ourselves to think that any system of choosing a prosecutor by vote or by, uh, you know, by the president is not in some way uh, part of a political decision. I'd like to talk about two specific points of the justice system, beginning with pretrial discovery. You're aware certainly that several years ago, the rules governing pretrial discovery changed to make it more transparent so that prosecutors turn over certain pieces of information within a limited time frame to defense lawyers. Do you believe that these expansions best serve the public interest? Or perhaps should certain information, perhaps witness information in violent crime prosecutions be protected to some larger degree? Well, I think that there needed to be a balance struck um, between old school discovery, which is really no discovery, and discovery today, which I think is overly burdensome discovery. I think the challenge of the discovery rules today, I think, present a huge burden and unfunded, by the way, typically, uh, on prosecutors. Uh, and in, in one sense, the concept of turning over every piece of paper that may relate to a case or investigation sounds, well, I could just do it. Uh, the challenge of getting all those pieces of paper in a, in a police department as big as ours, uh, where detectives may still be meeting on the case long after charges are filed and generating additional paperwork, uh, can be very burdensome and difficult, particularly because it's not our department. You know, we don't run the police department, so we are beholden on their abilities to identify and gather all documents that may be subject to discovery. And if they don't, they're not the ones whose case is dismissed. It's our case that may be dismissed. So I think um, I, I, I think that the, the expansion of discovery laws uh, was appropriate in, in, in a large measure, but I think it went too far and it has neither really figured out how to integrate uh, as I think well as it can, the police department's record keeping and production of documents to the prosecutor uh, or other agencies. But I, I, I have no issue with broader discovery. I just think it needs to be balanced with a sense of whether um, the prosecutor's offices has currently funded and are, are capable of getting that information. Um, and sometimes and sometimes they're not. It seems that the expansion was due in part to combat prosecutorial misconduct, Brady violations. What mechanisms did your office have in place? Um, certainly prosecutors and your assistants know what they're allowed and not allowed to do. This is, you know, law school 101 stuff. But what mechanisms did your office have in place to make sure stuff like that is minimized? Well, I think in 2010, I think I was one of the first offices in the country, um, maybe second only to Dallas, to opened up a conviction integrity unit, really the first months after I got in. And so uh, the conviction integrity unit was designed to um, have essentially a, 
a, a place to go to when you're a practitioner if you believe that an error had been made in uh, error had been made uh, in the charging of a case. Uh, you know, so both before charging and after charging. And and there were many lawyers I disappointed uh, when the group determined that the case should go ahead and be charged or, or, or a prior conviction should be reversed. And there were other cases where, you know, we, we did this uh, a, a number of times. And, um, and, I think it, and I think after a lot of thought, it was the right thing to do. So it ranged from smaller cases uh, to cases like the case involving the murder of Malcolm X. And, and ultimately dismissing the indictments against those individuals. That's, that's one way. So we had a conviction integrity unit whose job it was to do these deep dive reviews on cases. And the second is education. Uh, we found, I think in the last several years that among, among the most effective ways to train our assistants around uh, discovery issues and, and Brady, potential Brady violations is in real time to have the bureaus, uh, that is the trial, trial assistants and their, and their teams, uh, sit down and learn about cases that had just come through the office or were in the office, and I'll call them near misses, where yes, an identification was made, a show up on the street, the police officer arrested the guy, and, um, and Subsequently, hopefully before indictment, we were able to determine that, that a mistake was made. And then, so the assistants are not looking at a case that's 10 years old that they had nothing to do with. They're looking at how decisions they make today can result in the right or wrong decision. Uh, and that's, I think, very power, it's a very powerful training tool uh, because it's current and it involves people that they know. Uh, and nobody, is I don't I never met an assistant who wanted to hurt anybody with their authority as as being DA. I, I think you want your assistants to be forceful. You want them to be aggressive. You also want them to have humility uh, and to know that a it's a system of people. We are among the people in that system, and no person is perfect. And so it's very important, I think, for our assistants. Uh, to first of all have a forum in which they can learn about charging the charging challenges and, and, and mistakes and learn how to how to deal with them going forward. And to you know be to to understand by going through these ongoing processes that these things really matter to a DA's office. And the reputation of a DA's office can be hit very hard overnight uh, by some failure to, you know, some failure uh, of Brady responsibilities in, in, a, in a given case. Now, uh, another change put into place several years ago uh, was the change to our bail structure, right? Rules passed that some would claim are too lenient as it relates to violent offenders. What is your position on the bail reform that we currently have in place and on cash bail in general? Well, generally speaking on cash bail, I'm, I, I'm not a fan, never have been, because I think it you know, it does create something of a two-tiered system. Uh, people who have enough wealth uh, uh, are able to make bail, others are not. Um, 
I was in favor, I am in favor of bail reform, uh, but I, I, I still believe that it would be appropriate for New York to adopt the system that is in place in 49 other states, which is for, to enable a judge to uh, determine whether or not the individual before the judge is a risk of, there's a risk to public safety of that person's release back in the community. Now there's, I, I, I understand the arguments against it, um, but I also believe that uh, if we have tight guardrails around the power of a judge to do this, that it, it, it is, it, there need to be certain criteria that need to be met. There need to be returns to court to reevaluate whether or not uh, the conditions that existed at the time of arrest are, have somehow been mitigated or changed. Uh, I, do th I, 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 don't believe, I don't believe that is um, a bad thing for us to do what the 49 other states are doing. And I think that's principally my, my, my disagreement with the current bail system um, is it, it, it restrained the ability of the judge uh, to impose conditions uh, when I think judges should have more authority to, to be able to do that if, 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 if they think it's necessary, but within, you know, within real clear guidelines. Now, I want to finish up by talking about something a little more broad as someone who is intimately involved or was intimately involved with the criminal justice system, unlike many people in this country. What broad changes to the criminal justice system, both locally here in New York and on a national scale, would you like to see? Is it something involving bail or discovery or something else? I felt the DA's office in Manhattan was sort of on the front, front edge of the wave of prosecutorial reform and change over the last 12 to 15 years. And then certainly I think during the 12 years that I was DA. Um, I, I don't believe that being progressive is in and of itself a good thing. I think you need to be smart and uh, uh, and not just have a label as a liberal. Uh, I think that is sort of meaningless. I honestly, Dimitri, was um, concerned with what I see are the, what I believe are sort of the inabilities of our states, our cities, our country as a whole to tackle the big issues that cause criminal behavior in the first place. So by the time someone's in court on a serious assault case or a gun case, um, that person's already gone over a waterfall typically. And the problems that cause what happened to that young man or woman to be arrested today are often quite directly related to problems around education, around housing, around homelessness, around mental health. And, uh, and so police departments and prosecutors, I think uh, unfairly are expected by the public to solve, you know, to, to, solve to, to solve crime problems when in fact that really is more of a government, I mean, a government writ large, I think responsibility. So, it's, 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 it's that kind of thing. Another example would be uh, college and prison. 
just there's an example where you obviously want to do everything you can to make sure that someone who returns home from prison into their society, into their community, is got the best chance of success. And the most important thing to reduce recidivism is to get a college degree. And but New York wouldn't, for example, pay for that. Uh, so our office ended up having to pay for that college and prison for the state of New York. And it's, I think it's so. My response is is a is a is a larger response as your question is a larger question. Don't look necessarily to the prosecutors and police to change, uh, you know, to to solve crime. I think we we do things technically that are very successful for a period period of time, but I think we know that if you want to take criminal justice seriously, you have to understand who are committing these crimes, uh, typically why are they committing them? And there's a, you know, there's a backstory to every one of those. And it, it begins upstream in the home, in the school or out of school uh, or un unplugged. I, I think it's the inter, 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 interconnectedness between these two uh, things that need to be, that, that need to be focused on and we need long-term investments. Uh, not two and three year investments. We need 10, 15 year investments to tackle things like homelessness uh, and mental health. Yeah, Vance, thank you so much for your time, uh, for your effort. It's very much appreciated. Uh, thank you for having me, Dimitri. Nice to see you.